Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Simon Donato, and today uh, I've got an interview that I've been waiting a long time for, and we've had some technical issues that have gotten in the way of it, but hopefully today's the day. I'll be interviewing Adam Schultz, who is a renowned Canadian adventurer, and uh, he's got some phenomenal stories of his treks and tours around Canada, and in particular, we're going to focus on the Arctic today. So uh, the Adventure Science Podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous support of numerous sponsors, including Merrill, Farm to Feet, Sunto, Stoked Oats, Smith Optics, and Canada Satellite. But without further ado, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you back uh, since we've already tried this once before and uh, we're stymied by some technical issues on my end. So thanks again for uh, returning. Um, you know, there, there's been actually quite a bit that's happened in your life since we spoke last. And, you know, one of the uh, the biggest is you uh, the public announcement of you being named as an explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, of which you're a fellow. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be the explorer in residence, one of the explorers in residence. And uh, yeah, I guess it's going to be more of the same for me, doing expeditions and um, visiting schools and spreading the word about geography and environmental issues in Canada. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's a fantastic honor. It's not something that... Um they give away willy-nilly. Uh, you're joining, is it Jill Heinerth and uh, George Karunas? Yes, that's right. There's three of us. Yeah, so tremendous group. Uh, I know George very well, and uh, he's been on the podcast as well. Um, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about that, because for those people who aren't familiar with the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and then they're going to be less familiar with um, their programming and the support of an explorer-in-residence, what is an explorer in residence? What responsibilities do you have? Is there a particular tenor or duration? How are you selected? Um, I think it would be interesting and inspiring for perhaps some of our younger listeners, uh, some tame towards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of an oxymoron in an explorer in residence. Uh, I'm not actually in residence. at the, the society's headquarters are in Ottawa, and I'm not actually resident there. Um, so we, the society encourages us as explorers to be active out in the field, doing expeditions, um, being in the outdoors, and, and definitely visiting schools and uh, inspiring the next generation um, to take an interest in the natural world and in adventure and all these sorts of things. Um, so I guess we're not really in residence in Ottawa. We're all over the place. Uh, my particular focus is really heavily in Canada, not so much abroad, but I really like uh, Canada's subarctic as well as the Arctic. So that's where most of my expeditions have been taking place and will continue to do so. Um, so yeah, it's a really exciting uh, opportunity and I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. So you'd mentioned that you'll be speaking to schools uh, and sharing your uh, your adventures and your expeditions. What is the mandate then from your explorer and residence position? Well, it's a pretty new position at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. I know the Na uh, National Geographic has had explorer and residence for right. many years. Uh, but part of, I mean, the society's mandate is making Canada better known to Canadians in the world. And geographic education has been at the top of that list uh, since the society's history uh, or founding back in 1929. Um, so this fits with the society's mandate of um, 
doing outreach in classrooms across Canada and speaking to students. Um, but it's also a position that's predicated on doing expeditions. Um, I have a couple of new expeditions I'll be doing uh, this upcoming summer, but really I'm anticipating doing a variety of expeditions uh, in all four seasons throughout the year. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, maybe we can chat a little bit about the upcoming ex expeditions as we get into this, but, um, you know, I'm interested, you, you talk about the student side of it, so not many students are necessarily exposed to the outdoors or opportunities to participate in expeditions until, you know, they're kind of making decisions for themselves, which typically happens in uh, high school years or um, once they're they're older than 18 and they've chosen to go to university or otherwise. So what, uh, what lit the fire for you in your early years that put you on this path? Well, I was lucky, at least I think I was lucky that I grew up in uh, rural Canada. So uh, there were, you know, my backyard as a kid was a big swampy forest and there were no streetlights um, where I grew up. We, we, we just had the stars above us. So uh, it was a pretty old fashioned upbringing where my brother and I would be out in the woods with our dog. We'd be shooting bows and arrows and making shelters and trying to start fires without matches. And that was my first playground as a kid, the woods. And I really fell in love with it. And I'm 32 years old now and nothing has really changed. I still kind of go out in the woods every day um, just to play because, you know, I really love uh, the natural world and forests in particular are kind of a, a special environment for me. It's where I feel most at home. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I really fell into this path in life, I guess you would say, is uh, my first sort of childhood exposure to um, going out in the woods. And it's just something I really enjoy. Well, I, I think that's something that's uh, shared amongst many of us who do have a passion for the outdoors. It's, it's that early introduction. And even if you go away from it at some point in those early years, while you may be chasing academics or a different type of athletics, because, you know, let's face it, in school, you're presented with join the soccer team, the basketball team, things like that. So those kind of take focus for a while. But... Um, once you have the, the opportunity to uh, make your own decisions, I think if the seeds are planted, it's a little easier to return to it. Did you ever deal with that where you pulled away for a period of time to other pursuits and then, you know, just felt the pull to come back? Or were you just, it was always, this is it, I love it too much, there's no way I'm leaving the forest? Yeah, no, for me, I was pretty much, uh, it's been a lifelong love affair. I never... Uh never became uninterested in the wilderness and the forest. I've loved it all my life from childhood uh, right through my teenage years. Um, in high school, you know, I'd constantly be out in the woods and planning canoe trips and adventures. Um, I certainly had other interests. I was always a big hockey fan playing hockey and, and doing different things. But uh, the wilderness, I guess, has always been my first love. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that has been a constant throughout my life. Excellent. So, you know, we've been talking about uh, growing up in the outdoors. Um, academic pursuits fit into that because we all have to go to school. You're wrapping up a PhD at McMaster University right now, a uh, candidate in history, going to be defending any day now. So how did your academic path take you uh, to where you are? And, and would you say it's, it's helped you as it, as it aided you along the way? Or you've walked hand in hand with your interests and seeking out uh, a certain academic pathway because I know that when I was young, uh, you know, under the age of 10, 
I was fascinated by paleontology. As I got into high school, paleontology wasn't part of the curriculum. So it took me a lot of years to actually circle back to it, and I ended up doing a master's and PhD in geology, paleontology, but it really wasn't on my mind until I stumbled across it in university. How did that play out for you? Uh, well, I remember when I was in the 10th grade, we had something called career studies, uh, which is when you're supposed to pick a career that you would like to pursue. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, I think a lot of my friends chose like NHL hockey player <laughs> or a Hollywood actor. Yeah. And as far as I know, that didn't exactly pan out for any of them. But um, when I was in the 10th grade in that class, I chose park ranger. Um, that seemed to be the ideal career for me. As a 15-year-old, I thought, well, you get paid to, to live in the woods. That sounds like my cup of tea. And I remember I interviewed an actual park ranger um, for my project, and I, I thought about it. You know, I looked into um, Sir Sanford Fleming College in Ontario right. that has uh, natural resource programs. But I, I didn't end up going down that path. I did have a summer job working as a park ranger once that I really enjoyed. Um, but I was very much a bookworm. Um, by the end of high school, I really liked uh, reading history books and historical novels. I got really into like gothic fiction, like Frankenstein and Dracula. And these are all books that were written over a century ago. So I became really curious about trying to understand more of uh, the past and uh, really interested in history. So I ended up thinking, well, I'll go to university instead and I'll study history because I just love reading these old books and I want to know more about them and understand the context of the time and when they were written. So I ended up doing that, but I never really um, lost my interest in the wilderness. And half of what I ended up studying um, in university was kind of like wilderness literature or um, exploration narratives. So I found a nice... Was that self-guided or was that somehow uh, worked into McMaster's curriculum? Well, I did my undergrad at Brock University, and at Brock, I had enormous amounts of time on my hand um, because I didn't own a vehicle, so I had to spend all this time on campus, and I was from a rural area, so I would always have to, like, you know, uh, catch a ride with someone else. So I would have spent, like, 10 hours a day in the library in between rides, and with all that time on my hand, I would just kind of peruse the shelves at random up on the, like the eighth and the ninth floor of the library. Perfect and environment for bookworm. Yeah, it was it was heaven. You know, I would find books um, that looked interesting, pull them off the shelf. All this classical literature, archaeology books, history books, um, novels, all sorts of things, and I would just read them all day long. And that was kind of my real education, even though it wasn't actually part of the curriculum. I mean, my classes were great, too. I took a variety of classes from science to French. Um, but I really enjoyed just my own uh, self-directed learning, reading those books that I was fascinated in. And I think they really shaped me um, as a writer later on when I ended up writing my own books. So did you have an interest in in writing your own books uh, at an earlier age? Or when did the uh, light bulb come on and say, you know, I've, I've done some things now that I'd like to share with people, and I can do this myself? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, I just moved, as I said, and I'm unpacking things from these boxes, and I found my uh, one of my notebooks from when I was in grade 12. Uh, I took, like, English writer's craft, and I was kind of flipping through it, and it was sort of funny because there was different projects our teacher assigned to us um, and one of them was, you know, write a story about a, a personal, um, a personal story about something you've done. And I ended up writing 
about a canoe trip I had just finished with my best friend at the time, uh, this guy Wes, and we'd canoed a local river together, and it was all very Huckleberry Finn-like, and I ended up writing a story about it. So um, thinking back when I was about 17 or so, I think that's when I did first start to think, you know, I'd love to be a writer one day. Um, didn't know what exactly I'd end up writing, if it would be like gothic fiction, which I was always a big fan of. Um, so far, I've written adventure books and history books. Um, but yeah, I think that that was something by my late teens, I was definitely um, aspiring to do. I didn't know if I would ever succeed, but I definitely hoped by that point in my life um, to one day write a book. Excellent. Well, I mean, now at the age of 32, you've done numerous expeditions that have taken you all over Canada. And I know when we talked before, you mentioned that they've taken you abroad as well. Uh, a lot of your expeditions, especially to the north, involve paddling. What's your love affair with paddling? And, and why have you chosen to bring that um, to the fore with your expeditions? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, that reminds me of something I read in a, a Bill Mason book. Um, Bill Mason being Canada's most famous canoeist of much of the later 20th century. And, uh, you know, Bill Mason was asked a very similar, similar question to what you just asked. And that was, um, how did he first get into canoeing? Was it love of wilderness that came first or love of, of paddling? And I was surprised by Bill Mason's answer. I thought for sure he would say it was love of wilderness. Um, but he said it was just the opposite. He grew up around Lake Winnipeg and he said for him, he first fell in love with boats and canoes and paddling. And that's what really came first. And for me, it was the exact opposite. Um, when I was a kid, I thought of myself as a woodsman. I mean, that was what my heroes were, woodsmen. I wanted to be a woodsman, and I just wanted to know about surviving and living in the forest uh, like a trapper or something. And canoes were simply a means to an end. That's all they were in my eyes. It was a means to get from point A to point B and not really an end in itself. Uh, it was just something I did to, to travel in the summer months. Um, so I was the opposite of Bill Mason in the sense that love of wilderness definitely came first for me, and canoes in the beginning were just a means uh, to get from point A to point B. Now, having paddled many thousands of kilometers in a canoe, um, I enjoy canoeing as something in itself. But still, to this day, I would say, you know, canoeing is, is very much secondary. It's about experiencing uh, the natural world. That's what, what's really drawing me out there. That's what I really enjoy. Although canoeing is, you know, it's a great, great uh, pastime in itself, I guess. So I have a technical question for you then. In adventure racing... An early um, innovation was for paddlers, teams, to start using kayak paddles instead of the traditional canoe paddle when paddling uh, canoes because your stroke rate increased and you went faster. Have you ever tried that? And Or, or are you a, a purist when it comes to that? How, how much does speed matter for you? Ah, uh, see, I'm not a purist. I was a purist when I was like a idealist, 21 year old. In those days, I did. I did. Glad to see society no got through to you. Grinds you down. Yeah, I did. Ex yeah, I did expeditions with no satellite phones, like just you know, uh, hard scrabble equipment, roughing it. I didn't even use tents in those days. No tents. Um, but I'm not like that anymore. I gave that up um, in my mid 20s, and now I just uh, I use whatever's most efficient. Uh, on my most recent expedition, I did go with a more innovative paddle choice, um, not the kayak style paddle I think that you're describing. I used a bent shaft paddle. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you – yeah, so I had two different paddles, a bent shaft paddle for flat water, and then I had a more traditional paddle that I used in uh, white water. 
and, uh, you know, choppy water. So, yeah, I've definitely I know uh, there's been some debates among people like uh, famous Canadian canoeist Kevin Callan. Uh, he, you know, I don't think he's a big fan of, of bench shaft paddles and other traditionalists and purists aren't. But um, I thought, you know, anything that's going to give me an edge, especially when I'm dealing with a lot of flat water, I'll use the bench shaft paddles. So, um, yeah, I'm not like that anymore. I use uh, the most efficient gear, generally speaking, that I can get my hands on. It's funny how, you know, that, that seems to be common. There's an evolution from, uh, I guess, our novice years to perhaps where we are today when we might consider ourselves seasoned uh, adventurers and expeditionists where in those novice years you don't have the experience or the level of experience to take on the really big projects but you've done all the reading and you know the reading you've done tends to be a lot of the classics you know maybe you, you dive into outside magazine here and there to see what's new with gear but you know when I was uh, getting into it I barely had any money to rub together. I was paying for university myself. Um, so my very first adventure race, which was an expedition race, I think I had maybe $500 to spend on registration and gear. You know, that didn't leave me with a lot of options. Uh, I didn't even know what half of the fancy uh, gear items on the mandatory gear list were. Like an emergency blanket, I brought a wool blanket instead of a little tinfoil blanket. I mean, the internet, you know, that was back in 1998. Um, we were barely emailing at that point. So, you know, I, I think part of it is, you know, we're just ignorant because we don't have the experience. We're not ignorant to the literature necessarily, but we don't have the experience to be able to make those decisions for ourselves and really figure out what works for, our, for us. I, I think being successful, uh, especially with the major expeditions that you take, means that you have to adapt, but you have to critically analyze your gear choices, your route selection, um, and you know make hard decisions. Uh, would I do this again? Did I do this the right way? And what does it mean to me to depart from maybe the norm uh, to something that is, is new and maybe radical or other people might not view favorably and, and question my choice for it. I've, I've struggled with that in, in certain instances. What do you think about that? I mean, would you say that seems to be an accurate evolution for you or have you come at it differently? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, for me, uh, I always try to put, have a positive outlook and try to put the best, uh, face, uh, on everything. So when I had no money, um, I would just make a virtue of necessity. Well, I can't afford uh, flashy gear and the best canoes, so I don't need them, right? Uh, better to paddle something I built myself anyways. And I used to build canoes with my father and they were actually nice canoes, but you know, I had like $20, um, canoe paddles, uh, that were like, you know, secondhand that I bought, um, from somebody, and even up until I was like 27, the expeditions I described in my first book, Alone Against the North, I had a very limited budget. I couldn't even dream of buying a canoe brand new. I had to like look on online uh, Kijiji and, and sell, buy canoes used. Um, so there's definitely, you know, making a, a virtue of necessity. And, uh, you know, you put a put a, a, a sort of a good good face on it that you can't afford anything better. So, you know, you tell yourself, you oh, I don't need it. Um, and I'll just make do with what I've got at hand. But now that uh, I have fortunately sponsors um, like Nova Craft Canoes and Mountain Equipment Co-op, I can get the best gear. And, and that certainly 
makes a world of difference. I mean, that's something I've thought of many, many times in the wilderness on my expeditions. It's wow. Um, having the best gear, it's like night and day. It makes your life so much easier than having to do it um, with stuff that's really not top of the line at all. So it makes a huge difference if it's a better sleeping bag keeping you warm or a tent that's not going to collapse on your head or a canoe that can go through any amount of rapids because it's not going to puncture when a rock slams right. into it. Um, that makes a huge difference. So uh, I don't foresee in the foreseeable future going back to my early days of having a shoestring <laughs> budget and just you know getting everything secondhand. But who knows? Uh, fortune could go any way, and I might go back to square one and have to do those expeditions. But for the time being, at least, I'm definitely enjoying having um, better quality gear at my disposal. Sure. And nobody challenges you uh, in terms yeah. of how you get around. Like the traditionalists won't take you on over your bench shaft or you know other means uh, because it, it's weird. The exploration and adventure community, they can be so picky and finicky about things. And I don't know whether it's pride and ego driving this or what, but um, you know, big well, yeah, epics. I, I don't know. Any- I, I don't know anyone who would challenge uh, me on it for a 4,000-kilometer solo journey across the Arctic. But I think if you, it depends what you're doing. I mean, if you're just going out um, for a weekend canoe trip in Agonquin or a weekend hiking trip in Banff, well, that's a different story. Then, you know, it's it's perfectly reasonable to be a purist and just use traditional gear because – for a relaxing short trip, well, then it's more about you know getting back to the basics and reconnecting sure. with the land. So by by all means, go to the basics. But if we're if we're planning a huge expedition that's going to be many months in duration and thousands of kilometers, um, then I don't think there's very many people who wouldn't, if the opportunity presented itself, take advantage of a better canoe or a better tent or a better paddle. Um, it just makes sense. So yeah, certainly I would do that. I mean, the way I look at it is. Doing these kind of adventures, and this probably speaks a lot to your own background in racing, um, it is kind of like um, an athlete's career. And if you look at NHL players today, uh, there's virtually no one that's still using a wooden stick. They're all using composites because the technology is just better um, and improves your shooting. I mean, I think 10 years ago, there was like two NHL players, uh, Jason Spezza, Adrian Coyne, I think, who still have wood sticks. But out of 700 others, they're all using composites. And I feel like it would be the same way in um, adventure racing or extreme paddling expeditions. Most people are going to use the best paddles um, they can get their hands on. They're not going to try to use something that's not as efficient. So that's just the way it is in sports. And I think expeditions in many ways are a lot like uh, sports in that sense. Well, I'd have to agree with that. But it's been interesting in the sense that I've noticed that a lot of athletes and adventurers are walking a very fine line now where you know they go for broke for example so let's talk about composite sticks the downside to composite is that they break easily and you see broken shafts oh, yeah. litter, littering the ice in many games you didn't see the same with wooden sticks in the adventure world and uh, fast packing and ultra running and things like that and adventure racing you know, the move went from big and bulky, which is what we all started with, to ultralight. And ultralight is phenomenal when it works and when the conditions are conducive for it. But when things change, it it can really just 
end an expedition because you don't have the right gear. So, you know, I've always found that interesting as um, with our projects and our races, you know, we push to be light, we push to be fast and maximize. But at the same time, the longer I've done this stuff, the more gear I actually carry now. It, it's Think of an hourglass. When I started at one end of it, it was big and bulky and I had a lot of grains of sand in my backpack. Then I went through the waste of the hourglass where things got really, really lean. And I thought to, to be fast, you had to be a hard man. You had to really suffer. And then now I'm coming back up the other side of the hourglass and adding more grains into my backpack. And I'm actually having more success overall with expeditions and things. And, you know, it, I, I think it ties closely to age as well. And when I was you know, at the waist of that hourglass, it was mostly, I think, ego and bravado that, you know, you're looking around, you're comparing yourself to others, you're also racing a lot. So you want to see how fast you can be and, and light is fast. And man, I, I remember some adventures and races where I just suffered like a dog. It was bad. I'm not as interested in doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's racing, so you need a you need a very particular strategy for that, and uh, that's a little bit different than the kind of expeditions I do, which are I'm only really racing against myself. So I I guess I have more of a luxury there that I can pack um, certain things that you wouldn't necessarily want in a in a race in a real race. For example, I always pack um, some books because I like to read. So if I was I guess in a real race against other competitors, that's probably something I would cut out. But for me on my own in the wilderness, uh, my books are kind of like a necessity because it's, it's one of the things that I really enjoy. So um, I guess that would be a difference between my kind of expeditions and doing an actual competitive race against other people. Well, I, I can see that. But I mean, this also parlays to our expeditions that are, you know, we're not out there for, for how long was your recent Arctic? Four months, five months? Four months, yeah, four months. Right, so we're not we're not out there that long, but for a week or two, you know, you've got to make a decision on gear and, and how fast you want to be, and um, you know, that's really where it comes down to it. But I think you're right, having that racers and athletes mentality um, makes it a little more challenging when we're looking at gear and we're like, eh, we can go without that, eh, we'll skimp on water today, and you know, sometimes you you do all right, sometimes it gets you in trouble. But hey, I really want to hear about um, this recent Arctic uh, crossing that you did, phenomenal project, huge project. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty and the details. How long did it take you? How far did you go? I know you brought the boat. Uh, I'm interested in the split. How, how was the paddling? How was the portaging? Let's, let's get into this. Yeah, so this uh, Arctic expedition was my own personal project. It was really just something I wanted to do for my own satisfaction it happened to coincide with 2017, so I kind of made it unofficially um, about marking Canada's 150th anniversary of Confederation, but really it was my personal uh, interest that drew me to this idea, and I had had it for a number of years. Um, but it was a nearly 4,000-kilometer journey from the northernmost part of the Yukon up on the Arctic Circle in the Richardson Mountains, and then I just headed east from there, quite simply. I went east. Um, for as far as I could make it um, before before winter struck in September. And I ended up crossing the Yukon and then through the Northwest Territories and then across Nunavut, uh, ending in Baker Lake, Nunavut in September. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty long journey. It was mostly by canoe, um, but a lot of it was on foot as well. 
Um, much of my route involved upstream travel around 1,250 kilometers roughly was up river, um, up various rivers, like seven or eight different rivers in total. So because I was going upstream against some really powerful current by necessity, um, I guess, although I kind of think of it as canoeing, I, I really was on foot for a lot of that, just hauling my canoe or lining it or, you know, dragging it behind me. Um, so if I did the math and worked it all out, um, there would be a considerable percentage of the expedition where I was on foot. And then, of course, um, there was a lot of portaging involved. I, I, over the course of my route, I crossed uh, something like five major watersheds, starting in the Bering Sea watershed and eventually getting into the Hudson's Bay watershed. Uh, so because of that, That's there was a heck of a lot of portaging. Yeah, there was a heck of a lot of portaging involved in between all these watersheds, hundreds of kilometers. And uh, my portages, when I was fully loaded with all my provisions, would involve four trips to complete just a single portage. I had two watertight plastic barrels, which held my food and my camera equipment and some other gear. Then I had my backpack with my tent and some other necessities in it, as well as my canoe. So when you factor in all that portaging, I mean, say say I had to do a three-kilometer portage in between uh, two lakes. To actually complete that three kilometers would involve uh, seven legs of a trip, and that would be 21 kilometers total to complete the crossing with all of my different loads. Um, so when you include all of that, then yeah, I probably spent more time on foot than actually paddling over the course of the whole expedition. But yeah, it was, it was a really great experience. It was a, obviously a big adventure and a huge challenge, but um, I think it's something that the memory I will cherish uh, for as long as I live. Oh, I bet. So for a trip like that, what are some of the specs on your canoe? Uh, what's the material? What length did you use? Was it custom built for you? Yes, I had a custom built canoe from Novacraft Canoes in London, Ontario. I'd been paddling uh, Novacraft canoes of various length and different design types um, over the last number of years. So for this expedition, I definitely wanted something as lightweight as I could get, but still strong enough that it would endure everything 4,000 kilometers of Arctic wilderness could throw at it. I knew I'd be paddling through ice and rocks and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I went with a 15-foot canoe, and it weighed around 53 pounds approximately. And it was made out of... Um, okay. No, it wasn't fiberglass. Um, it was actually a new type of material that um, Novacraft has been building canoes out of only for the last couple of years. Um, it's polypropylene um, okay. with... Uh, ball salt melted down and then fused together with their waterproof resin. Um, so they call this, uh, if you look, if you're interested in a Novacraft canoe, it, they're marketing it as tough stuff, um, T U F F stuff. And it is really strong, durable, but light enough that if you're a solo tripper, um, you can still carry your canoe on your own. So it worked really well for me. Interesting. So aside from, you know, putting it through its paces, open water, fast water, white water, uh, any any close calls, you bounce off any rocks, logs, uh, anything that you thought, did anything puncture the hull? Do you have any challenges there? Oh, well, uh, the canoe definitely suffered an incredible amount of abuse over the course of the journey. Um, I had to haul and drag it up creeks that were literally only ankle deep so it was being like gouged and scraped on all sorts of jagged rocks i had to cross great bear lake um, which is the eighth largest freshwater lake in the world it's bigger than two of the great lakes mm -hmm. and that was still ice covered so really? there was constantly like ice gouging the canoe 
there was a lot of scraping along it and shaving it, but amazingly over the course of the whole journey, it never punctured and I didn't have to do any kind of field repair to it. Mind you, by the end of the thing in September, I definitely did not look too pretty and it needs a few repairs now, but I mean, it, the canoe withstood everything um, that was dished out at it and it, it held up really well. So it was pretty good. I mean, I was a little tense, a little apprehensive towards the end of the journey imagine. that the next rock, the next rock in a rapid that would strike it would be the you know the final straw. And I was starting <laughs> to think like I could see some really big like um, stress marks right under my uh, where I was kneeling at the back of the canoe where I'd been um, suffering a lot of abuse, especially on the one side of the canoe because I did a lot of um, I mentioned a lot of upstream travel and a lot of that was poling. So I had a, like an 11 foot pole where I'd be standing up in the canoe and just pulling off the river bottom. And because I kind of favor my left side, um, the left side of the canoe would be closer to the bank. And there was so many rocks and things that it hit, it got hit a lot on that side. So that side had a lot of uh, stress, but again, it, it held its own and it never punctured. So that canoe and I became uh, very good friends over the course of the expedition and well, it quite held a, up really well. Well, yeah, it's a testament to, uh, the construction and durability of uh, that Novacraft. So that's great. Novacraft's the first canoe that um, that I had as a kid. And uh, oh, awesome! I wish that it had held up as well as this one. We we didn't know what we were doing, and we abused the hell out of it and cracked the fiberglass a few times. But uh, we still have it. It it's not as pretty as it once was. But really? Oh yeah, it's still it's still going. It's an antique. Oh, that's awesome. It is. Yeah, it fiberglass is usually as well, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's neat because I don't really know much about the um, uh, you know those composite material, the polypropylene uh, style. I always just kind of viewed them as just the big tubs, and uh, it's good to see yeah. that they're sleeker. Well, now. Novacraft is a, yeah, Novacraft's a great company, and they will build canoes out of about five different materials depending on what a person wants, ranging from their ultralight Kevlar mm-hmm. canoe. Uh, to like super heavy um, polypropylene ones that can get up to 100 pounds if you know you just really want to fool around in whitewater rapids with it and you're not going to portage the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they still build them out of fiberglass. Uh, they, they've built them out of everything over the years, aluminum, um, ABS Rolex, all different kinds of things. Right. And so uh, depending on what a person is looking for, they will build a canoe to their specifications. So the Kevlar canoes, how long would that have lasted on your trip? Five minutes? Oh, that would have hour? lasted <laughs> – yeah, yeah. I was going to be a little more generous. I would say maybe a week or so yeah. um, because the first paddling section of my route was up the Mackenzie River. Oh. Um, so it would have been an okay would have been okay on the Mackenzie, but as soon as you get into any kind of rocks, um, it would puncture the, the Kevlar puncture is really easy. Um, right. That's their big drawback. They're super light, but they just they can't withstand that kind of abuse. So that wouldn't have been any that wouldn't have been an option for me, no. See that that's interesting to me, and you know, obviously, you've got the experience and you've done your research. But again, to get back to that light and fast versus what's the right tool for the job argument, and you know, where I'm saying I'm on the other side of the hourglass now, you know, it sounds like you're there too. It's the appeal of something so light and so fast uh, it must be very alluring. But you're like, okay, let's be realistic about this. The first set of rapids I hit and the first rocks I bounce off of could end this project. We've got to go heavier, which means slower, but in the end, it'll be faster. And, you know, that's the kind of thinking that 
has evolved with um, with what I like to do as well. So I find that interesting. Well, let's talk some more about the project. So 4,000 kilometers, you cross the Arctic. What did you see along the way? What were some of the some of the highlights? What were some of the the greatest challenges that you faced? Well, for me, the one thing that draws me out time and time again on expeditions is um, getting to see wild animals in their natural habitat. That's something I've always loved. I think it's almost magical if you see a whole family of Arctic wolves swimming across a river or a herd of caribou wandering the tundra. Um, those are the kind of special sights that never get old. And that was probably the biggest highlight for me. I remember there was one day um, I just endured a really bad storm in the night. My, you know, the winds were howling. My tent was flapping around all over the place. And I had a really rough day of upstream travel. Um, and then the next morning, bright and early, I woke up to the sound of something splashing in the river uh, that I'd camped along. And just a few days earlier, I had a, a tense, sleepless night with a bear outside my tent. So I was thinking, okay, here comes another bear. Um, but I, you know, unzipped the screen door of my tent. I stuck my head out, and it wasn't a bear. It was um, a young caribou just swimming across the river. And then it was about five, six feet from my tent. And, you know, I just thought that that was such a cool moment and really um, special. So, you know, getting to see all these different um, wildlife species in the Arctic um, up close and personal, getting to film a lot of it. Uh, that was definitely, I think, the part of the expedition I most enjoyed. Well, that sounds pretty cool. So, you know, you mentioned going up uh, upstream. It was a tough day. How many bottles of uh, A535 rub did you use on this project? I didn't. I didn't use any. <laughs> <laughs> How was it on the body, though? Blisters, sore muscles. Uh, any major issues? No major issues. I lost a few toenails, but uh, nothing major. I mean, I held up pretty well. I ate a heck of a lot of protein bars. Um, I still lost weight over the course of my expedition, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, the only kind of wear and tear, I mean, I had a lot of cuts and scrapes in right. July, I had a tremendous amount of black fly bites on my throat and uh, oh. around my body, just brutal amounts of bugs massacring me in July, like not mm -hmm. only black flies, but there was, um, well, they call them bulldog fr uh, flies in the Northwest Territories, but they're basically what everyone else thinks of as horse flies biting me. Yeah, um, they'll take a chunk. Mosquitoes and other things. Yeah, yeah. So lots of bug bites in July. Um, probably the only thing that really, uh, no, lots of cuts and scrapes and things. But no, I was fine physically. I held up really well. And, and uh, yeah, that that wasn't an issue. My fingers were a little bit sore um, from gripping my pole because uh, I mentioned I did a lot of polling. So and I was putting in really long days, like 12, 13 hour days, and I wouldn't really take many breaks. I would just kind of go steady, slow and steady wins the race is, is what I would tell myself. So right. gripping that pole, um, just having my fingers in that clenched position all day long, they would be really sore. Um, but that was, I mean, I consider that a pretty minor price to pay for having done my journey. So I was pretty lucky overall. I didn't have any bad, uh, no health complaints or anything like that. So that was good. Well, yeah. And one thing you, one thing I actually, great. yeah, I was actually something your listeners might find interesting is um, my water purifier. I had this like brand new Swiss made four hundred dollar water purifier. Um, it actually broke completely on like day six of my expedition, and then I went the rest of the time um, with no water purifier. So I was just drinking really? untreated water. Yeah, over the course of my whole expedition, the only time I treated any water. Um, because I was moving so fast, I couldn't stop for breakfast or lunch. My breakfast and lunch were just protein bars or energy bars. Keep going. 
But uh, so the only chance I ever had to purify any water was at night. I would boil water um, with my freeze-dried meal, and then I would just fill up my thermos, make a green tea in my thermos. But that was the only treated water I had over the course of my expedition. The rest of the time, I'd just be filling my water bottles up straight out of the lake or the river. And over the course of my entire journey, um, I was never sick from Jardia or anything else, and I was never sick um, after the expedition either. So that's something I think well, a lot great. of people in the uh, wilderness community would find interesting that I yeah, just totally drank untreated water for that long with no ill effect. I know that there was just recently, within the last uh, couple of years, a new peer-reviewed study that was published looking at water quality in North American backcountry lakes. Mm-hmm. And that study um, was kind of surprising, its results. They concluded that... Um, for the most part, it was safe to drink uh, water in backcountry lakes and that concerns of Jardia had been overblown and that, you know, you're most likely to get that stuff from fellow campers. So if you're in a remote area, your odds of getting it were relatively low. So I was, uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that nothing bad happened to me from drinking untreated water over the course of my whole journey. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a game changer to game ender if um, you come down with something yeah. like that. Um so you mentioned I, that... I was thinking it's on my mind. <laughs> Pardon me? Oh, I said it was definitely on my mind. I mean, I thought about it, but uh, yeah, I was lucky throughout, so that was good. Well, so you mentioned one piece of uh, gear that broke down for you, but you also mentioned that you you were moving quickly. So eating uh, protein bars for, for breakfast and for dinner, what was, what was your diet like when you were out there and kind of how did you break up your days? How, how tightly... Did you have this all scheduled? Uh, well, I mean, I had it fairly tightly scheduled. I rationed out something like 10 bars a day over the course of my expedition in order to get enough calories to, to sustain myself. And I had a huge variety of different bars, um, like cliff bars, but all different kinds of bars. I had like 29 different types in total. Um, I tried to get the biggest variety of ingredients as I possibly could. Right. I remember I went to like some specialty stores and paid a fortune mm-hmm. to get some vegan bars that had like kale and stuff in them, uh, just so I had a little <laughs> bit of vegetables. greens in my diet. Yeah, they tasted like cardboard. I'd have to soak them in the water as I was paddling so that I could uh-huh. digest them and chew them. But uh, no, there was definitely some better tasting ones out there. But yeah, so I knew um, – this would really be a, a race against the seasons, right? That's what was constantly on my mind. Just three words I would say over and over again in my head as I was paddling or hiking all day long, and that was, winter is coming. Winter is coming. So I knew I had to move fast because of, of winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, I designed my expedition right from the start that I wouldn't prepare any uh, meals in the morning. Uh, you know, No making a fire to cook oatmeal or anything like that. As much as I love oatmeal, um, and no stopping for lunch or anything. Uh, just going to shore can be time consuming, right. find a spot to land. I mean, a lot of Arctic lakes, no good landing point. Um, so I, all my meals for breakfast and lunch were just things I could eat on the fly as I was going, the protein bars or the energy bars or builder bars or what have you. And then the only actual cooked meal I would have on my expedition was at night. And that was usually just before climbing in my tent. So th- those were all freeze dried meals. Um, so that's the way I designed it. And that was all about, uh, e- speed, speed and efficiency of travel so that I wouldn't have to cook or prepare anything. Normally on a, any other expedition I do, I would stop for breakfast and, or I would have breakfast before packing up my site. Usually I would always have lunch on the fly, but, um, I wouldn't normally just, you know, get up and go in the morning, but that's what I did on the, the expedition. 
And then as far as the wild edibles went, I had a lot of Arctic berries in August um, for like three weeks. Uh, well, from maybe the very end of July up until around August 18th or so in that window, uh, the tundra was alive with uh, different edibles uh, like cloudberries, which are delicious, and uh, crowberries and Arctic blueberries and a few other different types, lingonberries. Oh, um, so those very were really, high in antioxidants. Yeah, berries. yeah, they're awesome. Um, a lot of people in Canada call them mountain cranberries, but I always call them lingonberries. That's what they call them in Scandinavia. Yep, Scandinavia, and I, I love those so really good stuff. Cloudberries, delicious. Uh, but that was really brief over the course of my whole my, my whole expedition, the, the berry season. I, I didn't do any fishing. You know, normally I love fishing. I do a lot of fishing. But for this expedition, there just wasn't time. I had to stay on my task of just moving forward. So All I right. didn't I didn't do any fishing on this expedition. Just uh, kept going. And well, I, I believe I definitely want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you see him jumping or uh, better yet, you're paddling over top and you can see schooling fish and, and whatnot. I'm sure it's uh, appealing, right? Yeah, it was horribly tempting. I'd be like, "Oh, I could be soaking it. I could be sinking my teeth into an Arctic char right now." But mm-hmm. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. And also, uh, there was something new to this expedition that I'd never done before, which is um, filming. I mean, I don't have any background whatsoever in, in cameras. Um, I know as little about cameras as possible. So there was a plan right from the start I, to make a documentary about my journey and. That was something totally new and a whole new challenge for me that I had to be disciplined enough to film things right. and devote to filming when that wasn't really my natural preference at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tried to do the best job I could. So that was another thing I had to budget for, which was stopping to film something or setting up like a tripod to capture something and uh, you know, charging using a solar panel at night to try to charge up some of my batteries and, and doing oh, yeah. that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. yeah, storytelling on these expeditions is uh, it's challenging, especially when you're the only one doing it. And, you know, there's so much that goes into it uh, behind the scenes with, like you said, charging batteries, equipment gets wet or damaged. Um, you know, it's just stopping to set up and, and take a shot a few times as you run a rapid or, you know, do something challenging like that. It's, uh, it's a lot of work. And, you know, it, it kind of splits your mind in two where one side of it, you're focused on your task at hand, but the other side of it, you know, it's a 30,000 foot view where you're continually analyzing, like, should I be shooting here? Is this worthwhile to film? Uh, should I take a Should I do a self interview here? Uh, it, it adds a different dynamic to it for sure. So how did you enjoy that process? And when are we going to see the doc? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, the documentary is still uh, a work in progress. My, uh, I have a team of people who are helping me put it together. Um, we're editing four months of footage and trying to turn it into like 90 minutes. Um, so it's a big decision excluding the overwhelming majority of my footage, which just can't, <laughs> can't fit into a documentary. <laughs> um, so, you know, the vast majority of the stuff I filmed, we just, we don't have room for it. Um, so we're just picking the best parts, but we'll still hopefully give the viewer a sense of the journey. Um, I don't know the timetable on when we'll have it finished, but hopefully this year um, it'll be out and people can watch it. And uh, I mean, anyone who's interested in that, they can find me on Facebook. It's just my name, Adam Schultz. You can like my page and sooner or later I'll have the documentary, uh, the news about it out on there. Um, 
but yeah, that was definitely a different challenge for me. I, I was no less Stroud. I didn't do any like extensive selfie footage. I didn't like hike to the top of a ridge, set up a tripod and then hike back down and record myself going up it. I, I really didn't have that kind of uh, time. I just had to move right. as fast as possible. So most of the footage was on the fly. I had three cameras with me, uh, two GoPros and then a slightly better camera. It was like a Canon 4K I think I'm really not good with technical stuff, but it was a bigger camera that I did like a lot of wildlife footage with and filming. Um, but the GoPros, you know, I had those mounted on my canoes or I have them on a stick so I could record. Um, but it was pretty good. And, you know, it was uh, we actually had footage of me taken at the very start of my journey. I had a crew of people who believed in the project enough that they went there and they filmed me uh, setting off with a drone. Oh, nice. And then they came nice. at the very end of yeah, they came at the very end of my journey and they filmed uh, the final final bit of it, uh, last like kilometer or so as I paddled into Baker Lake to end my journey. So so people who watch the documentary, uh, they, they will get some beautiful cinematography, not just my selfie footage. There's this really nice <laughs> drone footage uh, at the start and at the end. So that's good. Yeah. Oh, that's that's good. We always laughed about uh, you know Boundless or the little docs that we make through Adventure Science. You know, we when you're out there doing it, it's all selfie and, and you know shaky stuff on the fly, and you can tell when you had the professional cinematographers there to run the interviews, the proper before and after interviews, drone footage, everything else. So it's just like let's not let's try not to screw up too much when we're filming ourselves, and you know the rest of it will carry it. So, but I'm sure what's going to make your film is. Um, is the stuff that you shoot because you just can't replicate that um, that first time experience and you know the wonderment and excitement that that comes. So you know, go pros or not, it's I'm sure it's going to be phenomenal. So that's exciting. I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to that. Well, you know, it's uh, I can't wait to hear about what you do next. And for the viewers or the listeners interested in um, what you've done, what you've uh, what you're planning right now, and some of the uh, the Exploring Residence projects or talks that you'll be giving. Uh, let's let's share a little information there. But first, I'd love to know uh, some of the books that you've written just by title so that viewers can uh, look those up. Or where can they find them? Um, eighth floor of the Brock Library or uh, are they on Amazon or where should we send them? <laughs> no. Uh, Alone Against the North. Alone Against the North is my uh, – Story of my adventures for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, mapping waterfalls and paddling wild rivers. Uh, that book you can find anywhere in Canada, pretty much where books are, stole, are sold, independent bookstores, chapters, Indigo, online on, on Amazon. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you pretty much can only buy it on Amazon um, or outside of, outside of Canada, I, I should say, anywhere you are in the world. But in Canada, you can find it in bookstores. Uh, outside Canada, find it on Amazon. And uh, my second book, A History of Canada in 10 Maps, um, is a history book, but also an adventure book. Um, it, it's kind of like Game of Thrones meets Canadian history. I tried to give early Canadian history the epic treatment and uh, tell the, the most exciting adventure stories with Vikings and First Nations and Voyagers and Courier de Bois. And it's a big epic saga uh, looking at 10 centuries old maps that shed light on the early history of Canada. And as you could probably guess about a book on Canadian history, um, you're going to have a hard time finding that book if you're outside Canada. You can still get it on Amazon. In Canada, you can find it in bookstores. Um, it, it's been a bestseller in Canada, so 
you can get oh, it in congrats. bookstores in Canada or on Amazon. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very good. I mean, uh, writing a book on Canadian history is always a uh, – you're putting your career on the line when you do that because, that you know, most people think Canada's history pretty boring. Don't write a book on that. It's not going to sell any copies. Um, but I wanted to – you know, I, I when I was at McMaster, I taught um, ancient Greek and ancient Roman history. And there was never any issue whatsoever in getting students excited about the course material. They thought, you know, Spartans and Persians and Battle right. of Thermopylae and all these places. So exciting. And I wanted to do the same sort of thing for early Canadian history, which is actually written in blood. There's just endless wars and assassinations and mutinies. And, you know, two of the 10 chapters in that book start with somebody getting their head chopped off. So oh, um, nice. it's definitely not your PG-13. Heartwarming It's not your PG-13 yeah yo no it's a great adventure story if you like that kind of thing uh that's what it is but yeah history canada and 10 maps and alone against the north those are my books you can find them on amazon or in bookstores in canada well that sounds great uh online facebook your name adam schultz um so i ask everybody uh what their their mantra is for adventure and exploration so you've been there and you've done that aside from winter is coming which seems a little grim. <laughs> what, what is, what's your other mantra? Uh, well, one thing I always tell myself is uh, if you're in a really extreme expedition, mind you, this is like for the really grueling ones, um, one thing I always love to tell myself is mind over matter um, because I do think that a lot of these expeditions, as challenging as they are physically, it's the mental side that really matters and keeping your morale high. I mean, this is something I've seen many times in the wilderness and probably you have too, Simon, where you're out there with someone who's, you know, physically um, an amazing specimen, you know, wonderful athlete, but mentally um, the bugs get to their psyche or, you know, they can't deal with the miserable weather or the food or something and they get discouraged and then they want to quit. And that's why I think, you know, mind over matter works a lot because a lot of these expeditions, it's really the mental side that is the uh, make or break, you know, keeping yourself motivated, keeping your spirits high. And if you do that, then you can pretty much handle anything the wilderness is going to throw at you and, and uh, you know, keep the will to keep going. So that's one of the one of my mantras, something I always tell myself, mind over matter. Um, another strategy I have, especially for my 4,000 kilometer Arctic journey was uh, something very simple. I would just say, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other or taking another stroke of the paddle and just keep going, you know, one step at a time. And every step is bringing me that much closer to my goal. So I would just kind of not focus on the big picture, but on the here and now and just putting one foot in front of another and seem to work for me. I mean, those simple, simple little things you tell yourself. Well, it's, it's so right. And it does all come back to mental strength and, you know, the ability to look beyond the present and, um, you know, realize that, you know, there's, there's greater, uh, rewards ahead. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's just one step after the other. I know when I got into ultra running, uh, you know, because I was a hungry athlete, I just viewed it as eating a pizza, right? I'd never run over a hundred kilometers in one shot before, uh, before I signed up for my first rank length race uh, of that distance. And, you know, it was just, it was a slice at a time. And those slices were, you know, broken up by aid stations along the way. And, you know, for the first few aid stations, it seems like there's a hell of a lot of pizza to eat. But, uh, you know, after several hours of running, 
you realize that, you know, it's not bad. I'm just running aid station to aid station. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be looking down the barrel of a 4,000-kilometer journey and have to break it down day by day and, and ride the emotional roller coaster uh, and the ups and downs. But I think, you know, at the same time, you, you try and take that emotional roller coaster out of it in the sense of, hey, today might be a challenge, but tomorrow could be awesome. So let's just keep going. This is what we signed up for. And, um, you know, it's not always going to be uh, miserable with with bugs chewing at my throat, uh, you know. There, and then you have those moments where the caribou wakes you up in the morning and, you know, kind of erases uh, the tough days. So, yeah, I think, you know, when you mix in a little bit of experience, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. And it, with, you know, bringing other folks into the wilderness to share these um, expeditions with them, be them massive epics or not, it's just getting them past that point where, you know, they don't have much experience and they're kind of fearful or uncomfortable to, okay, they've got a little bit of experience under their belts now and they know that things will improve. So, you know, you just kind of grit it out and, and you get there and it's worth it in the end. So I love it, man. Well, hey, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time twice now to <laughs> do this podcast. Um, you know, your, your projects fascinate me. I think you've got a, a great uh, outlook on uh, what it takes to be successful with these things. I love the, the big goals that you've set for yourself and that you've accomplished. And uh, next thing for me, I've got to read your books. So thanks again, Adam. It's been a real treat. Oh, my pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to uh, pick this up again in the future. I definitely want to keep tabs on on what you're doing. Uh, good luck with wrapping up the PhD. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be nice to have that behind you, and I know you're so close right now. So all the best for a uh, great summer. And again, folks, if you're interested in learning more about Adam, uh, you can find him on Facebook, Adam Schultz. Google him. Um, but he's got books out there. And hopefully in 2018, we're going to get to see his documentary of his crossing of the Canadian Arctic. So all epic things. And the adventure science wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our sponsors. Again, we'd like to thank Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Smith Optics, Stoked Oats, and Canada Satellite. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And if you like us, check out more of the podcasts. They're online, iTunes, and elsewhere. Thanks again, folks, and we'll catch you next time.